Good evening, good evening. Welcome to another wonderful night of learning Tiny together. And uh, <laughs> the author of it begins, uh, he, he doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't hold any, any bars, right? Is that how you say it? The author of it jumps right into it. We have a difficult subject today. Last week we introduced the concept of joy, the importance of joy. The author of it did not really teach us technique yet, but the author of it gave us the general introduction of why joy is so, so, so vital to a Jew's life. And why all forms of negativity and melancholy and, neg and, and, and pessimism, they sap your energy, they destroy your emotional stamina, they, they destroy your energy, and it just simply does not allow you to function. And a Jew has to function. A Jew has to be healthy. A Jew has to be, have an open heart to be ready to fight a lot of life, a lot of energy, to face the fights of life, and for that you need to be happy. So, dear friends, we're going to be continuing today. First, let's dedicate tonight's class, thank you, Leah, to a soldier who is wounded, who is in critical condition, who needs our mitzvahs and our prayers. So we're going to dedicate tonight's Tanya learning uh, for the speedy and complete recovery of Maoz ben Verda Devora. May have a speedy recovery. And I just saw today that there was actually a, a soldier who three weeks ago, not too long, pretty crazy, three weeks ago was, was severely damaged on the battlefield. Uh, uh, a bullet went through his lungs, and his lungs uh, exploded. His lungs uh, were totally ripped open. And he teetered on the brink of life and death for a few weeks. Um, and they were able to, he was slowly recovered, and they were able to, to close back up his lungs. And uh, today he was back on the battlefield. He, he, can, he, he, was, uh, he was the leader of a battalion, I believe, and today he led his battalion back on a new mission today. So uh, unbelievable, the strength and the courage. Of, uh, of our soldiers, of the Jewish people. So, God willing for, for all the soldiers to have a complete recovery. And uh, they should be complete in body and in soul and in spirit. And uh, we should only have good news for the Jewish people. So, dear friends, chapter 26. Let's recap what we spoke about last week. Very briefly, the key points, we're going to jump right in because today is a big, big, big class. Joy is very important. Joy is not a luxury. Joy is not an optional uh, uh, add-on for life. It's not, it would be nice if we could be happy, but if not, then, you know, whatever. Joy is an absolute necessity. Judaism needs you to be happy. The author ever tells you the precondition for the whole of Tanya is that you are happy. None of this is going to work if you're not happy. If you're joyous, if you're full of life, if you're in the right spirit, you got good energy, good vibes, right, Leah? Good memories to Moshe, who told us, taught us about good vibes. You got good vibes, then you'll be successful. Then you could be successful. If you don't have good vibes, it's, it's over. Nothing's going to work. And this is a very big, a very big switch, a very big, what we call an aha moment, a change of perception. Most people think that when will you be happy when you're successful? So success is the cause, happiness is the effect. Says the author of it's the other way around. You don't become happy when you're successful. You are successful when you're happy. First, you got to be happy. When you're happy, then you have all the strength to be successful. The first step is you got to be happy. And that joy enables you to be successful. And because of that, happiness is very much in our hands. To be happy takes a lot of work. To be happy is not something which happens to us. It's not an emotional state that we fall into. Like people fall into love. People think they fall into happiness. You don't fall into happiness. Happiness is something that we need to work very, very, very hard to create and generate within our own lives. And the author is telling us about the importance of happiness, not just to tell us a concept. The author is putting us to work over here. <laughs> putting us to work. Get to work, guys. you got to make yourself happy. How do you make yourself happy? So we spoke about this last week, Hillary, and I'm very appreciative, Hillary, that you brought it up. It's not by taking pills, right? <laughs> joy is not something which happens automatically. It's, it's not cheap. To be, joy, to be joy is a serious business. It takes a lot of hard work to cultivate the attitudes and the perspectives and, 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 and the lifestyle, the mindsets that help us be in a good place no matter what happens to us, even if life is hard, even if we're stressed out, even if there are things that are <coughs> weighing us down. And the author is going to give us the tools, issue by issue, in the next few chapters. Different forms of negativity, different forms of stresses and pain that drag us down, and they shut us down, they, 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 and they, they make us really feel really bad about ourselves. And that is not, we're very, very vulnerable when that happens. We can't win wars 
when we're feeling down about ourselves. So it's hard work. And the idea is we have to take every single form of negativity and sadness and melancholy and we have to treat it and do something that removes that sadness from our heart. The altar doesn't even want us to have a trace of sadness or anxiety in our heart. Not a trace. And one of the things, one more final point before we jump into today's topic is the author taught us the idea that while sadness itself is never good, sometimes it is necessary because sadness sometimes is legitimate and sometimes if it's legitimate and if it's done properly and correctly, it could lead you to a place of even greater joy. It leads you to back to health. So there is an idea sometimes, some forms of sadness are illegitimate, meaning get rid of them. Simply throw it out. Throw it out the window. You don't want this sadness. It's inappropriate. and it, 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 It's not correct. Some forms of negativity are correct. We're going to have to learn some more Tanya to discover what forms of sadness those are. But even those has to be done correctly, properly. Done in a way which it's not going to drag us down and, and only exacerbate the problems of life, but the opposite. It's a temporary phase that leads us on the road to health. So that's another nuance over here. Some forms of sadness are, are, are legitimate. Some forms are, are illegitimate. That's part of what we're going to have to learn. The author jumps right into the deep end over here. We're on page 197. We'll be learning the middle part of the chapter, chapter 26. Um, and what can I tell you, dear friends? It is a difficult subject. We're going to be talking today about facing pain, suffering, and stress. Real-life problems in real life where there are things that don't go the way we hope they would. And it causes tremendous stress. So let's begin learning. We'll, learn that we'll start reading the first paragraph, and then we'll discuss a little bit more. So page 197, part two of the chapter, Facing Pain, Suffering, and Stress. Says the author of it, here is the prescribed advice. <laughs> it's prescribed. This is the official advice. To clear your heart of any sadness or trace of anxiety about material concerns, even of children, health, and finances. Okay, so somebody says I'm stressed out because I cannot afford to take my family on a vacation to, uh, to, the, to the Bahamas. Okay, no, please. <laughs> if that's what's not working out in life, right, take it easy. <laughs> so you can't afford a five-star cruise? All right, you know, don't worry. Life is good. <laughs> What happens if there's somebody who legitimately something in life is something which is important in life, something which is not a luxury in life? It's not going well. And the author gives us the three key areas. Children, somebody is not blessed with children. Or they're blessed with children, but uh, they're struggling tremendously with their children. They're not successful with them. There's a, there's a lack of, of, of harmony with the children. Health, health problems, health concerns. That's real stress. Right, and and finances. If there's real money, money stress, that could that could weigh on people hard. And there's all different, you know, there's there's many different forms of of levels of how bad it gets. It could just be stress. It could even get to the level of a tragedy, right? True tragedy, real pain and suffering. So how do we approach this? So, dear friends, it is such a big topic. Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to me? Where is God? Why would God do this? All these types of questions. It is such a big topic. And not only is it a big topic, it's, it's multifaceted. You could take a philosophical approach. You could take an emotional approach. It's a massive topic in the world of theology, in the world of philosophy, in, in, in the Jewish, in, in, the, in, the, in the corpus of the Torah's body, this question. Why is there evil? How do we understand evil? Where is God in the face of evil? But the altar is simply not here to teach us philosophy. I want to remind you that. The altar is here to give us advice. So everything the altar is about to tell us is something that the altar wants us to work hard, and it's going to be a lot of hard work. This is not an easy piece of Tanya to digest. 
The Alter Rebbe wants us to learn this and to empower ourselves, literally empower ourselves, embolden ourselves with a sense of faith and trust in God. And the Alter Rebbe wants to give us a deeper understanding into the nature of reality. And that next time we are going through a difficult time, we should be able to remind ourselves that this is the truth of the Torah. This is what the Tanya teaches us. And uh, I need to hold strong. I need to hold strong. Even when I'm going through a difficult time. Which means, no matter what the author is going to tell us, the tragedy doesn't go away. If we're suffering, if we're stressed out about something, children, health, and finances, the author is not going to make that go away. What the author could do is give us certain attitudes that will change the way we perceive these ideas, these events, these phenomena. Because we all know feelings come from perceptions. The way we feel about something is based on the way we understand it. If we change our understanding of something, our feelings towards them change as well. Change attitudes, change emotions. So the author is going to give us something to think about, something to learn about. And dear friends, this is something which takes a lifetime, a lifetime, to, to cultivate, to teach ourselves, and to strengthen ourselves. And we have to remind ourselves again and again, this is, this is, this is hard work. The author is putting us to a lot of hard work over here. If what we're about to learn doesn't sound easy, that's good. It's not meant to sound easy. <laughs> it's not meant to sound easy, but the author is saying this is the attitude that a chassan needs to have. And this is the attitude that will help you live life with resilience, with strength, with an anchor of trust and faith, and uh, with what they call equanimity, emotional equanimity. Which means, again, the author is not going to take away pain. If something hurts, if something's difficult, it's got to be difficult. But there's something called you could, you could cope with it. You're resilient. You have equanimity. You have emotional equanimity. You're stable. You can still function the next day. You have an inner, may I even say, a joy to life. You have a certain joy to life. You're able to survive. It's not breaking you. It's not crushing you. That's what the author ever wants you to have. That's what the, that's what the author ever wants to empower us with. So let us begin learning. The author is going to take us on a journey to understand what the Torah teaches us about evil, about tragedy, about suffering that happens in our lives. And um, let's see where it takes us. So let's begin. Number one. Let's begin learning. Page 197. Everyone knows the teaching of our sages. This is what our sages tell us in the Mishnah. Just as you should bless God for the good, so you should bless him for the bad. This is in the Mishnah, where it's teaching us the laws of making blessings. We all know in Judaism, we make a lot, a lot of blessings, right? You're eating food, you make a blessing. You're lighting Shabbos candles, make a blessing. You're wearing, uh, uh, you know, you're, even when you're eating a new fruit, which you didn't eat that year, or you didn't eat that season, you make a Shachiyano. You light menorah, you make a blessing, lots of blessings. There's also a blessing for when something good happens. It's called... We thank God for doing good, for being good, and doing good for us. And then our sages tell us, and just like you make a blessing when things go good, you also make a blessing when things go bad. What's that blessing? That blessing is not the same blessing as when something good happens. You're not thanking God for something good happening, because <laughs> it's not good. But what do you do? It's a blessing. It's called Baruch Dayan Ha'emet. Blessed is the true judge. And it's the famous blessing that somebody says when they learn of the passing. And you say it with God's name when you learn of the passing of a, of a next of kin, of, a, of, a, of an immediate relative. You just learn of the death of, of a loved one, and you say, Baruch Dayan Hamad, blessed is a true judge. You make a blessing. Which is very, very profound. Now, just think about this for a moment. What's, what's the initial message? You make a blessing when you hear of sad news. It's very profound. What you're saying is, you are recognizing that God is in the picture. You know, so often you'll hear people say, where was God when I was suffering? You know what Judaism says? He was right there. He did it. <laughs> in a certain way, it's, it's, it's making God a lot more guilty. 100%. Put God back in the picture. He did this. It was his call. He was the judge who decided that this should happen. 
and a Jew affirms. He says, he, he, he gives an affirmation. God did this. God did this. We never say in Judaism, where was God? We immediately say, this was God. For some people, that's, that makes it even more painful. Some people would rather say that God wasn't there. And what does Judaism say? God was right there. Say a blessing. This, this was from God. Right? We believe in monotheism. We believe there's only one God. We believe there's only one power. So if something happened, good or bad, it was from God. And the first step is you have to accept it. God did this. He is the true judge. I don't know how to make judgment. He does. He decided this should happen. It's the first step of acceptance, of, uh, again, equanimity. God did this. I don't like it, but I don't have to like everything that the true judge decides. He did this. And I accept it. As painful as it is. We're not saying it's not painful. Let's continue reading. The Talmud explains. The Talmud says, an interesting point. <laughs> what does the sages mean when it says, just as you should bless God for the good, so you should bless him for the bad? It's a different blessing. So what does it mean it should be done the same way? Says the Talmud. The Talmud explains that this means that we should accept such tidings with the same joy as we would receive tidings that are immediately perceived as good. Ooh. What do our sages mean when they say, just as you say a blessing, when there's something good happening, so you should say blessing, something bad happens. But it's not the same blessing. So they don't mean say the same thing. They say, feel the same thing. The posture has to be the same. What is the feeling when something good happens? You, you receive good news and you say, oh, thank you, Hashem. Thank you, God. You took good care of me. And I'm going to say blessing to you. And we appreciate God's presence in our lives. The Talmud says, have the exact same attitude when something bad happens. Which is, which is, which is so difficult. But the Talmud, this is Judaism. A Jew has to work hard to try to build up within themselves a sense that if there's something, even negative, that happens, we accept it. God knows what he's doing. And I put my trust and faith in God. If he decided this is what we have to do, we accept it. We accept it calmly. It doesn't take away the pain of it. But at least we know that this was done based on the judgment, based on the determination of the true judge. God decided that this is what needs to happen in his world. Now, dear friends, let's talk a little bit about this. I want to tell you two stories. They're both true stories. The first story is like a little bit of dark humor, <laughs> but it's a true story. And the idea of the story is that this is a very difficult thing. This is so difficult. Accept with joy, but that's what the Talmud says. Lekabuli besimcha. Besimcha. It says, use the word simcha. Receive, accept. Take in news, negative news, with joy. Just as you would take in good news that you're excited about. There was a rabbi. Listen to the story. There was a rabbi. His name was Rabbi Berish Meislish. Rabbi Berish Meislish lived about 100 years ago. He was a, he was a rabbi in, in Poland. Later in his life, he became the chief rabbi of Krakow, then Warsaw. But when he was younger, he was very successful. He had a, a lumber business, and it made him a lot, a lot of money. And he was able to both support his family very comfortably, and he was able to, he established the yeshiva. He was a Torah scholar. He had a yeshiva, and he was able to pay for the whole yeshiva himself. So it was wonderful. He didn't have any overhead. He didn't have to fundraise. He was just simply able to pay the bills, run the yeshiva, teach boys. It was wonderful. His business was that every single spring, he would have a whole team. They would go out to the forest somewhere in Poland. He owned a whole part of the, a whole area where he had a contract, and he was able to uh, cut down lumber and, and, and timber. And the way it used to work back in the days, I don't know exactly how it worked, but basically you would, it was called logging, right? You would take these massive, uh, 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 massive, uh, all this lumber, and you would send it down, down the river. And that's how you would transport it. And uh, like that, they were able to bring the, the lumber to different, uh, different towns and villages and different fairs along the way throughout the whole Poland. And 
He was able to make a wonderful livelihood every single year. One year tragedy struck. Just as they were logging all the lumber, there was a tremendous storm which flooded all the rivers and all the lumber was washed out to sea. It was all gone. And this was a devastating loss because all of his money was invested in this lumber. And that also means that he wasn't going to make any money this year. It basically meant he was a pauper. He just went from becoming wealthy to losing everything. The family knew that this news would be devastating to him. That's it. He literally just went from being an affluent man to being somebody with nothing. And he lost all of his savings because everything he invested in the in the New Year's in the, in the New Year's business, it's all gone. They know what to do. They were they were scared to tell him. They were scared that it would it would break him too much. But they knew that he he had a tremendous deep relationship with his yeshiva students. So they went to the boys. They said, you know, maybe one of you feel that you have the right way to share this news with uh, with with. With the uh, with you know with Rabbi Meislish, one of the students said, "You know what? I think I could do it." So this student goes. He knocks on his teacher's door, Rabbi Berish Meislish, and says, "Rabbi, teacher, I have a question for you." The Talmud says, and he reads him this piece of Talmud that just as one accepts good news, so too they should accept bad news, besimcha with joy. He says, "What does this mean? I don't understand." So the teacher says, "It means exactly what it says. That the same way you would be so happy." When you get good news, so too, when you receive bad news, you should be so happy. He says, I don't understand, but it's bad news. I know it's bad news, but you should say it comes from God, and you should be happy. He says, I don't understand. When I receive good news, I want to start dancing. You're telling me that when I receive bad news, I should start dancing? And the rabbi says, yeah, you're supposed to start dancing. When you get bad news, start dancing. And the student says, I don't understand. Rabbi, you're telling me that if you got news right now, that your entire year's worth of lumber just got lost to sea, you would start dancing? And the rabbi said, yeah, I would start dancing. And the student said, if so, dear teacher, you could start dancing now. And Rabbi Meislis fainted on the spot. <laughs> they right away revived him. They poured water on him. And when he came back to his senses, Rabbi Meisler said, you know what? Now I don't understand the Talmud either. <laughs> it's a very deep story. There's a lot of, lot of there's a, that's dark comedy, this story. It's a bitter tale. There's a lot of messages to the story. One is it's easy to preach, no? It's easy to preach. Yeah, the Talmud says start dancing. But then when it happens to you and you feel the pain, you feel the sting, oh, easier said than done, no? This is hard work. But the Alter wants us, the Alter wants to teach us the perspective that not overnight, but with but with work, we should train ourselves to be able to to handle, to be able to properly handle even uh, even the, the hard moments of life. I want to tell you two stories. Two stories. They're both stories of the Tzemach Tzedek. The Tzemach Tzedek was the Alter Rebbe's grandson, who was his eventual successor. He was his. He's known as the Tzemach Tzedek because that was his magnum opus. He wrote a book on Jewish law called the Tzemach Tzedek. Uh, so he's called, referred to as the Rebbe the Tzemach Tzedek. But his name was Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the original Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Rebbe's great great grandfather. <clears throat> the Tzemach Tzedek. There's a story that he told one of his Hasidim that every single week he should learn this concept in Tanya. Every week. A week shouldn't go by, doesn't review what we're learning today in today's class. And there's also in, in there's also a letter from the Yalta Rebbe that's printed in the end of Tanya. A letter which is very much on this theme. Uh, it discusses a lot. Laskil Chabino. Very, very, uh, discusses this idea where the, where the Alta Rebbe writes to a Hasid had a very difficult life. Very, very similar theme to this uh, to this Tanya. The Tzemach Sadek told the Chassid, learn every single week. The Chassid said 50 years later, a terrible tragedy hit him, and the Rebbe was preparing him for 50 years to be able to receive the news properly, to be able to stay strong. But I'll tell you another story about the, about the Tzemach Sadek. The Tzemach Sadek, his son, his youngest son, his name was Rabbi Shmuel,
The Tzadok Tzadok had many, many sons. His youngest is Rabbi Shmuel. And it's interesting, his youngest son was his eventual successor. The fourth Chabad Rebbe was Rabbi Shmuel of Lubavitch, the uh, Tzemach Tzedek's youngest son. So Rabbi Shmuel said that when he was a young, uh, a young man, before he was the Rebbe, his father was the Rebbe, he, 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 start, he started noticing that his father gave a lot of love and affection, just giving a lot of attention to one particular chassid. He couldn't understand, why is this one chassid getting so much of my father's attention? He seemed to be a pretty unassuming person, you know, didn't seem very important, didn't seem to be very knowledgeable, you know, like he didn't seem to be some uh, celebrated, venerable chassid. He was just a, a regular guy. He asked around, you know, can, you know, maybe somebody knows something special about him, nobody knew anything. So he asked his father, he says, you know, if you, if you don't want to share with me, why do you give so much love and attention to this chassid? And the Rebbe that Samach Sadek said, because this chassid is a Jew who is the living example, he epitomizes this teaching of the Talmud. That when something negative happens to you, you accept it with joy. And the Tzemach Sadek said, this chassid suffers a lot in life, and he accepts it with joy. Now, with joy doesn't mean that he's dancing on the table because of it. But joy means he has equanimity. He has trust in God, and it doesn't shake him. It doesn't break him. He can have a very hard day, and the next morning he shows up, and he goes to Davin, he goes to Shul, and he studies, and he doesn't lose himself. He says, that's a special Jew. And I, I want to support this Jew. I want to give him extra, extra support. So I make sure to give him extra love and affection. But the Tzemach was so impressed with this Jew. The Tzemach Sadiq told his son, very interesting line, listen to this. The Tzemach told his son, that my grandfather, the Alta Rebbe, inherited the glasses, <laughs> not physical glasses, the spiritual glasses, from the Baal Shem Tov. Special glasses that help you see the, the, the specialness of a Jew. The Baal Shem Tov had a special talent at seeing the beauty of Jewish people. Every Jew he saw, he saw the beauty within them. The Alta, and he said, the Alta Rebbe said that he inherited those glasses. And the Alter Rebbe, the Tzemach Sadiq said that the Alter Rebbe gave them to me as a gift. So I have a gift from my grandfather that I could see special Jews. I see the specialness in Jews. He says, this Jew is very special. I know everybody thinks he's, a, he's, you know, he's nothing special, just another guy. Another guy, you know, hanging around. Uh, there's something very special about him. He, he accepts the, this news with such joy. So, how does that happen? How does that work? How does that work? How could we get to a place that we could legitimately tell ourselves that even when something negative is happening to us, when tragedy, suffering, misfortune, stress, how do we accept it properly? Says the author, let's continue reading. Why? Which means, how could we do this? How could we accept this news with the same joy that we would accept good news? Because this is also for the good just that it is not revealed good, visible to the human eye. The author tells us something here which is a crazy concept. You know why we make a blessing when something bad happens? And you know why the Talmud says you should be joyous when it happens? It's because it's really not bad. It really is good. Nothing bad actually happens from God. Our sages already say this. Ain ra yorid no There's no bad. Nothing evil, nothing bad comes from heaven. If this happened to you, if God put this on your plate, it's good. The only thing is, the author was telling us, there are two types of good. There's good that you could see. <laughs> good that you appreciate. And then there's good that you can't see. Covert good. There's overt good and covert good. There's good that you could see. There's good that you can't see. Or in other words, there's good that feels good, and there's good that doesn't feel good. Which means Alta was saying, yeah, in your subjective attitude, in your subjective experience, one thing has a good experience, one thing stings. But it doesn't change. From God, it's all good. How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that? Everything is good. Everything is really good. If it came from God, it has to be good. There's an interesting story. It's a Hasidic tale. One of the early Hasidic rabbis, his name was Rabbi Aharon of Karlin. 
Rabbi Aaron Karliner. He was a colleague of the Alter Rebbe. Till today, there's something called the Hasidim from Karlin, the Karliner Hasidim. Like there's the Chabad Hasidim, uh, there's Karliner Hasidim. So the original Rebbe of Karlin, his name was Rabbi Aaron of Karlin. He was a student of the Magad of Mezrich, a contemporary of the Alter Rebbe. And Rabbi Aaron of Karlin promised his community that after he dies, if the community ever suffers from a calamity, they should all come to his grave, and he will storm the heavens and make sure that the calamity stops. So lo and behold, after his passing, the first tragedy befalls his community. They run to his grave, they pray, they go back home, nothing happens. What happened? Our Rebbe promised us. They go back the next day, they pray, nothing happens. They go back a third day, <laughs> they already see it's not working. So now they're very disappointed. The Rebbe told him that he's going to pray and he's going to storm the heavens and he's going to stop anything negative from happening to them. So there was a rabbi of the community who went to the Rebbe's grave and said, I demand an answer. <laughs> he made us a promise and now you're disappointing all of us. So that night, Rabbi Aharon of Karlin came to the rabbi in a dream and said, I apologize, but from my perspective, I don't see anything negative. To you, it seems like a calamity. To me, all I see is God's goodness. From, from this vantage point, it's all good. <laughs> you know, that, it's an interesting story. There's a lot to talk about there. You know, the disconnect of the experience of souls when they live in this world and bodies and souls. From, from God's perspective, everything is really good. So what does that mean? How do we make sense of this? There's some things in life which are good and feel good, and some things in life which are good, but actually feel to us like total tragedies. How do you make sense of that? What's the logic behind that? But what the author is telling us here, let's process this together. You know, people ask the question, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? The author ever says, one second. <laughs> That's a loaded question. Your question is coming with a preconceived notion. There's a false premise here. The question assumes that there are bad things that happen, and then the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Says the author, but there is no such thing as bad. The question is not, why do bad things happen? The question is, do bad things happen? And the answer is no. According to Judaism, there's no such thing as anything bad. There's no bad. That's crazy. <laughs> there's such a disconnect. God is giving us something which is good. And to us, it's not only that we don't get it, it, it stings. It hurts. It burns. It stresses us out and it causes tremendous pain. What does that mean? How do you make sense of this? So the author says, okay, the author's going to give us a secret. And over here we have to get a little bit Kabbalistic. To understand what it means. That there's some good which we perceive as good. And then there's good that we don't perceive as good. Let's go a little bit Kabbalistic. It's a little bit Kabbalistic, it's a little bit deep, but it's also very practical. All right? We'll all be able to understand this concept in Kabbalah. Says the author, Rebbe, let's continue reading. That is because... This apparent misfortune originates from the hidden world, a realm that is higher than the revealed world. There's hidden world and revealed world. The things that are good that feel good come from the revealed world. Things that are good and don't feel good to us, they come from the hidden world, which is actually higher. Says the author, let's continue reading, the revealed world is represented by the last two letters of the divine name, Vav and He. Whereas the hidden world is represented by the first two letters, Yud and He. So in God's holy divine name, which the English language calls the Tetragrammaton, right? The four holy, the four-lettered holy name of God, which we which we Jews don't pronounce. It's called the, the name of Havaya. There's four letters, Yud and a He and a Vav and a He. And in those four letters, and in the sequence of those letters, there's unbelievable depth. The first two letters, Yud and He, the higher letters, are the hidden worlds. To us, they're hidden. They're out of reach. They're beyond our horizons. The Vav and the He are the revealed worlds. The author says something very, very interesting over here. When something good happens to you and you see it as good, that comes from the lower revealed worlds. When something happens to you and it doesn't feel good, 
it actually comes from a higher place. You're getting a greater form of goodness that you don't even realize it's so good. Because it's it's so beyond your, your vision. It's so beyond your ability to, to relate to it. So to you, you don't even process it as good. But it's really a deeper form of goodness. It's a higher world. So let's try to unpack this in practical terms. So I'll give you an analogy. Whenever there are two parties in a relationship, and whenever there are... Uh, there's a distance, there's degrees of separation, there's, di- there's differences in maturity, there's differences in knowledge. You're always going to have the same dynamic, revealed world and hidden world. In other words, you have reality that is relatable to the lower party, and then you have, relatable, then you have reality that is not relatable to the, to the lower party. I'll, I'll give you an example. A great example of this is a uh, is a parent and a child, a teacher and a student, the exact same thing. Children don't understand parents because they're they're little children, they're immature, they're not adults yet, and therefore, because they're little children, they're not adults, they just don't get a lot of things, and their level of maturity limits them a lot. And to be a good parent is to make sure that you are interacting with your children on their level, on their terms. Everybody understands that. Sometimes when a parent does not act with a child on their terms, the child is going to misunderstand. There's going to be a disconnect between what's happening here. So here's an example. Imagine there's a little girl. My Shana just recently had a birthday. She turned five. So let's say a five-year-old girl. Okay, take a five-year-old girl. And it's her birthday coming up. And she's very excited. She knows she's spotted in the store. There's a new doll. And it's a nice doll. It's got so many bells and whistles and accessories. And she really, really wants this doll. And she makes sure to drop all the hints to her parents that for my birthday, I want to make sure you know, I want this doll. And lo and behold, it's the birthday day, it's the birthday party. They're surrounded by family and friends, and this little girl is so excited, and she's dressed up, and there's a birthday cake, she has a birthday hat, and the parents, finally time to bring out the gifts, and the parents bring out a box, and they open the box, and there's no doll. There's only an envelope, and in the envelope, there's a simple piece of paper. The paper has, it's the letterhead of an Ivy League school, of an Ivy League university. And the parents proudly read that we've secured for you a scholarship, a full scholarship in an Ivy League school. So that when you go older, you'll have the most amazing opportunities. All doors are open for you. And this little girl breaks down in tears, says, you're the worst parents. You're so mean to me. You ruined my birthday. She throws a tantrum. She threw a fit. Parents say, what are you talking about? You know how much money we had to spend on this? An advanced scholarship to the top schools in America? And you're unappreciative? You ruined my birthday. You're the worst parents. I hate you. What's going on over here? It's very simple. There is the goodness that this little girl could relate to. There is the goodness, there's the level of goodness which we'll call the revealed world. What does this girl think is good? There's a certain, uh, 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 there's a certain top to that. There's, 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 there's a roof, there's a ceiling to that. There's a certain point, you know, for this little girl, a doll is the, uh, is the ultimate goodness. But it costs only $50, and in, in 50 days from now, she's going to forget that it even ever existed, that doll, Right? It's going to be stuck somewhere. It's going to be in the playroom, and no one's ever going to look at it again. <laughs> so, what's a doll? What's a better gift, a doll or a school scholarship for life? A scholarship is a real gift. It costs a lot more money. It's real opportunities. It's a high-quality gift. What's the only problem? That this little girl can't relate to it. Goodness on that level is so high, so mature, that to her, that's a hidden world. She has no relatability to that world, to that reality. You talk to her that language, you lost her. 
You tell her, I'm giving this to her as a gift. She says, no, 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 I don't want that gift. Why are you giving this to me? Why are you making me suffer? Why are you ruining my birthday party? What do you mean ruining? I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting the greatest gift you can think of. No, you're ruining my birthday party. I want a doll. What doll? Dolls are stupid. Who wants a doll? I'll get you a real gift. That's, there's a disconnect. So, whenever there are degrees of separation, we're going to have this dynamic. Hidden world, revealed world. The lower party, the recipient, only has access, can only appreciate up to a certain level. Whatever it appreciates, that's hidden world. That's revealed world. That's revealed. Anything beyond what they could appreciate, the maturity, their vision, that's all hidden. A good parent has to do both. A good parent, number one, wants to take care of their kids. The kids have to be have to feel taken care of. So yes, sometimes we're going to buy our kids a little toy. And as parents, we know it's it's a waste of money. It's a royal waste of money. We're going to buy the kids a toy, and they're going to forget about it. In a half hour, they're going to forget about it. And I just wasted 20 bucks on them. But you know what? That's sometimes what it means to be a parent. You got to give your children revealed goodness. So you do it. You do it. It's okay. You do it. It's part of parenting. Sometimes when you're a parent, you got to do sometimes what's called tough love. Where you give your children real goodness. It's so real that they don't think it's good. And that's when a parent has to sometimes do things which are which make the child uncomfortable and make the child cry and but it's in the child's best interest I'm setting up for life I'm being a good parent over here either it's discipline or it's just simply creating good structures for the children I've made my kids cry when I force my Shana to go take up to, to go take a bath every one of my kids has phases where they love taking baths every single one of my kids have phases where they hate taking baths and as a parent you gotta sometimes say we're taking a bath and they'll literally throw a tantrum, and you'll pick them up, and they're bot- and they'll be kicking their legs, and you'll forcefully tear off their clothing and throw them into the bath. And then you'll wash their hair, and they'll be crying, you're hurting me, you're pulling my hair. They're crying. Are they suffering? They're suffering. Why would a parent make the child suffer? And what's the answer? <laughs> I'm not making you suffer. I'm not being mean. I'm giving you real goodness. I would be abusing you if I let you go for a month straight without a bath. Who knows what type of real damage it would cause you if I didn't make you suffer today. Meaning, the child doesn't understand. The, the good news is that as a parent, I know that my child will understand it very soon. And that's a comfort. Right now, they could be saying I'm the worst parent, but I know that they, <laughs> I know that, that as they get older, they're only going to have more and more appreciation and love, God willing. Okay, so that's... But that's the dynamic. There's hidden world and there's revealed world. We give that to our children too. When we give our children something good and they think it's good, that's called revealed world. That's the part of the relationship where we could both sense the goodness. Sometimes parents have to do things which are so good, they're so real, that our children don't even realize how good it is. To them, they may even seem like suffering. Like you have to go to school. Like you have to be on a schedule. No, you cannot stay up tonight till 11 o'clock. And all things like that. God does that to us too. Usually God gives us good, and it's a good that we could relate to. And that's when it's God giving us goodness, and we could appreciate the goodness. And we say, God, thank you for taking such good care of me. It feels good. And then there are times when God says, you know what? I love you so much that I'm going to give you a form of good. It's so good that you're not even going to feel it. It's so good. It's so good, it's going to feel like, it, it's going to feel like you're suffering. But it's the real good. It's the real deal. And that's that's a, that's a difficult pill to swallow, no? That God's going to put us through something, and it's going to hurt tremendously. And that we could say, God, I know that you did that for the right reason. I know that was really good. And I'm not going to understand it. That's the catch. If you understand how it's good, then it's not real good. <laughs> real good? It's... It, it, it's one or the other, right? Pick your poison. <laughs> you can't eat the cake and have it. If you want to be able to relate to the goodness, it's low-level goodness. That's God giving you a toy. 
You want real goodness? You're not going to understand it. But it's real goodness. But it's going to stink. It's going to burn. It's going to hurt. And even when it's hurting you, you got to be able to say, I trust you, God, that if you did this to me, I know it's good. Why? Because it's coming from the hidden world. It's coming from the first two letters of God's name, from the Yud and the He. Ka. That's the Ka. Like in prayer, we sometimes say that, right? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise Ka. It's only the first two letters of God's name, Yud and He. Continues the Alter Rabbi. Continues the author of it. Because the suffering in life is in fact a deeper form of good that comes from the hidden world, so now we can understand what it says. Fortunate is the man who is chastised by God. And God's name in this verse is spelled Yudhe, signifying the hidden world. Fortunate is the man who suffers from God. And it doesn't say God, it says Yudhe, the first two letters of God's name. Because the suffering comes from the hidden worlds. Why is a man fortunate? There's a lot of love and trust. Who disciplines a child? Who makes a child cry? Not a stranger. I never want somebody else's father to make my children cry. I want to make them cry. Only a father gets to do that. Only a father gets to put their children in difficult situations for their better good. Is that true? You want candies? A stranger could give you candies. <laughs> you want real love? Come to me. You want the love that hurts? Only a parent. Only somebody who really loves you. Only somebody who really cares about you could do that. Says King David in Tehillim and Psalms, fortunate is the man who God shows him that level of love and that level of trust. That God says, I'm going to give you a little bit of a difficult period right now. Only somebody, only a very, only in a very loving, close relationship does that happen. King David says, when God chooses you and says, I'm going to give you a difficult life right now. I'm going to give you a difficult episode of life. It's a form of, it's, it's God telling you that he trusts you. It's God telling you that I think I could, I think I could give you something on my terms. I'm not just going to give you goodness on your terms. I'm going to give you goodness on my terms. And I trust that you could handle it. I want to, I want to bring out your true greatness. I want to help you realize your... your, your I, want, I want to help you realize your true potential. Who knows? You know, we don't even know what this goodness is. There's so many different ways to explain it, but it's goodness. And God is saying it's, it's an expression of trust. Fortunate is the man who gets such deep level of trust and the real goodness from God. It's God saying, I want to give you high level goodness. Everybody else, okay, you want low level goodness? I'll give you low level goodness. But it's a deep form of a relationship. It's a deep form of a relationship. It shows that there's a lot, a lot of trust. I remember when I was in yeshiva, you know, younger when you're in yeshiva, they, uh, they're a lot more on top of you. You know, if you, if you sleep in, they get you in trouble. But when you get older, 18, 19, 20, the way yeshiva works is a lot more, there's a lot less uh, control. <laughs> and what I realized is that the kids in yeshiva who showed that they didn't care, the teachers also stopped caring about them. And the teachers stopped calling them over to discipline them if they missed class. Discipline from a teacher in yeshiva itself was a sign that they cared a lot about you. Because half of school, they didn't even care about that. Oh, you missed class? Yeah, we don't even speak to you about it. Sometimes, sometimes the chastise itself is a form of love, is a form of connection. is a way of saying, no, 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 I, I really want you to succeed. I'm going to push your buttons to help you get there. And the author says we have to reciprocate that as well. There's a tremendous quality, which the Talmud tells us, accept suffering with joy. You know what joy means? It doesn't mean to become an insensitive and detached person who doesn't process tragedy. You know, that's, that's not healthy. I don't know what the uh, mental health uh, medical terms for that are, but that's not a normal person. 
there are such people, right? They just don't, uh, when their family is suffering, they just don't understand how to suffer with them. What the other is not saying is don't feel pain. You will feel pain. But accept it. Accept it with joy. Accept it with faith. Accept it with trust in God. When God gives us suffering, God is not making us suffer. God is giving us a deeper and more truer form of goodness, which is an expression of God's love and trust for us. And we have to reciprocate that. We have to respond with trust. We have to respond by saying, God, you know what? I'm willing to make the sacrifice. I accept this. I'm willing to accept your greater form of goodness, even though life is going to be so much more difficult for me. I accept the challenge. We have to reciprocate that. Continues the author Rebbe. Bottom of page 198. This explains another teaching of our rabbis. That when the verse says that his beloved are as the sun when it comes out in all its might, it is speaking of those who rejoice in their suffering. Oh, the Talmud tells us there's a verse. The verse comes from the book of Judges, which speaks about those who love God, his beloved. And they are as the sun when it comes out in all of its might. Who is the verse speaking about? Who are these beloved? It is people who rejoice in their suffering. What's the connection? What does it mean that the people who rejoice in their suffering are the beloved to God? They love God. And what does it mean that they are as the sun when it comes out in all of its might? The author says, oh, to accept your suffering with love, sorry, to accept your suffering with joy takes a lot of commitment, takes a lot of love to God. That's not easy. It takes a lot of love and trust Continues the Alter Rebbe. For how can a suffering person rejoice? Only because he cherishes closeness to God more than anything in this world. As it says, for your kindness is greater than life. And closeness to God is much stronger and of immeasurably higher quality in the hidden world. For there is the hidden place of power of he who dwells in supernal concealment. You want your life or your money? <laughs> you want a good life or you want closeness to God? If you want a good, comfortable life, no problem. That's like God giving you candies and toys. Do you want do you want a relationship with God? Do you want you do you want to really be on a mission of God? That's the real goodness, but that comes with a price. Do you want God to be nice to you? Or do you want God to be real with you? Do you want God to be nice to you? Or do you want God to be honest with you? Nice feels better. But honest is real. Real is real. And it also hurts sometimes. When God gives us sometimes the difficult moments of life, God is saying, I'm going to be honest and real with you right now. This is this is what needs to happen. This is the true goodness. God doesn't make people suffer. This is goodness. But it's not necessarily nice. It's not going to feel nice. A Jew has a choice to make. Am I going to accept what God's giving me or am I going to resent it? Don't resent it. The only way to not resent it is if we make this mental choice. I want this deep relationship with God. It's not nice. It doesn't feel nice. And it's going to be very painful as I go through this. But this is real. This is my closeness to God. And I know I'm getting a deeper relationship with God, specifically in these deeper moments, because I am in a relationship with God in the deeper hidden worlds. Children don't have hidden world relationships with other adults, only their parents. It's a privilege to have a relationship where an adult will give you hidden world treatment. When I force my kid into the bath, that's hidden world treatment. When I discipline my child, that's hidden world treatment. I don't want anybody else doing it, only me. You know why? Because I love my child. And I know that I'm in it for the right reasons, and I know that I'm in it for the long game. I know it's coming from a place of goodness. When God does that to us, we have to accept that for what it is. How are you doing? There's a lot of love, there's a lot of trust there. And we have to appreciate that. We have to accept that. We have to say, God, you know what? I accept it. 
And we have to know that it's a sign of actually God's extra trust and love to us. Continues the author Rebbe, top of page 199, to conclude the concluding the subject. That is why such a person will merit to witness the sun when it comes out in all its might in the time to come. That's what the verse says. That his beloved are as the sun when it comes out in all its might. Those who love God in the future will see the sun come out in all its might. What does that mean? This is speaking about a time that is promised in the future. When Mashiach comes. When the sun will come out of its sheath in which it is covered in this world. The Torah teaches that when God created the sun, the sun is actually a lot more powerful than we perceive it to be right now. God made a sun, and then God made a sheath, a filter, a covering that very much limits the power, the intensity, and the glow of the sun. When Mashiach comes, God is going to remove the filter, the sheath, and we'll be able to witness the full glory of the sun. But says the author Rebbe, this is really alluding, this is a metaphor for the Kabbalah that we just learned about. Meaning, when the hidden world will be revealed. When Mashiach comes, the hidden world will be revealed. What seemed to us like suffering, what seemed to us as misfortune, we will see that it was actually good. Says the author of the light of that world, the hidden world, that we couldn't relate to, will shine and illuminate with a great and intense revelation for all those who take refuge within it in this world and shelter by its shadow. Those who accept their suffering now when Mashiach comes, they'll be able to witness and truly relate to the goodness, the deeper, the greater goodness that they thought it was suffering, but when Mashiach comes, we'll see it was actually a deeper form of goodness. Says the Alter Rebbe, for now it is the shadow of wisdom, a shadow and not light and visible good. Now we perceive it as darkness, as a dark shadow, as a dark cloud. When Mashiach comes, we'll see that it was really bright. The author says that should, this should be enough for those who understand. <laughs> Dear friends, what can I tell you? I want to tell you a story. It's a very special story. This happened in the late 1800s. The Rebbe, the Rebbe had a very great grandfather. Not a great, he was his grandfather, but he was a great man. A great grandfather. His name was Rabbi Meir Shlomo Yanovsky, the Rebbe's mother's father. And he was the chief rabbi, he was the rabbi in the town of Nikolaev in Ukraine. A very special man, an author on Jewish law. And uh, one day he got very sick. He caught the typhoid disease. That was bad news, because what they would do is the health department of Ukraine, of Russia, would take you, lock you up in a quarantine home, which was outside of the city, and it was basically a one-way ticket. They didn't want the disease to spread throughout the city, so they locked you up, and chances were you were not going to be recovering there, because it was a house which was so full of sick people and so much uh, diseases and contagious contagions around people, it was, a, it was a miserable place to go. They forced him in. Which was it, was, it was a death sentence. It was a one-way ticket. One-way ticket in, and uh, you leave on your way out with a, uh, in a coffin. That was, that was how it worked. This Rabbi Mary Shlomo had a friend. Had a friend. Had a deep, deep friend. Another chassid in town. His name was Rabbi Usher Grossman. And he was the shochet. He was a slaughterer, the ritual slaughterer in Nikolaev. He was a very special chassid, a very, fired, a very fiery chassid. He was known as Rabbi Usher Nikolaev. Rabbi Usher from Nikolaev. Rabbi Usher Nikolaev. He's a composer of many beautiful Hasidic songs, Rabbi Usher Nikolaev. And uh, he said, I can't let my friend suffer by himself. And he ran to this quarantine home and he banged on the door and he demanded that he be let in. He said, no way, you're not. You're a healthy man. You're not coming to this house. If you want, you could go in, but you're not coming back out. They wouldn't let him in. He says, I, he was ready to risk his own life. He said, I don't care if I get sick. I need to be there with my friend. I can't let my friend suffer by himself. And they, they refused to let him in. The guards didn't let him into the door. 
so he said, at least tell me, you know, which room, tell me, tell me where my friend is. He went to a window, a window in the back of the house, <clears throat> a tall window. And he screamed, he says, Mayor Shlema, you hear me? Do you hear me? He didn't hear anything. No answer back. He tries getting his friend's attention. There's no response. He sat there by the window. He opened up a Tanya. And he learned Tanya with his friend. He sat there screaming and for a full hour. And he learned with him, not this piece of Tanya, but the letter number 11, which is on this theme. It's a letter from the Alter to a Chassid who's suffering and teaching him this, this concept of having this faith and accepting the suffering from God. It's from God and to accept that this is God treating you well. This is, this is. He sat there and screamed up to the window and he read the Tanya out loud and explained it and learned Tanya with his friend. But he got no response. The next day he went back there and did the same thing. He's like he's like a, he's like a man in the desert, you know, talking to nobody. But he sat there learning Tanya. Every single day he went back there. He did not give up a single day. The same Tanya. Have trust. Have faith. Don't let. Don't break yourself. Accept it with joy. A few weeks later, miracle of miracles, Rabbi Shlema gets better, and they release him from the quarantine home. And the first thing he did is he went he went over to his friend, Rabbi Asher Nikolaev, and he gave him a deep, long hug. And he says, I owe my life to you. You saved me. He says, I was in this home, and I was so depressed. I was so I was crushed. I was broken. I'm, almost, I'm all of a sudden separated from my family. Nobody could visit me. I'm here to die alone. I'm lonely. And all of a sudden, I'm sick in bed. I feel like I can't move. I have no energy in me. And all of a sudden, I hear your voice screaming through the window. Mary Shleim. I was so weak, I couldn't even get up, I couldn't even respond to you, I couldn't scream. But you taught me Tanya, and you encouraged me, and you told me to hold on to my faith. And it lit a little spark in me. And the next day he came back and he did it again. And it gave me a little bit more hope, and a little bit more trust in God. And he came back the next day. He didn't let me forget it, you didn't let me fall. You held up my spirits. And slowly, slowly I started feeling better. Because I had, I had this resilience. And uh, he says, he says, if not for you, I wouldn't be here. So it's it's an unbelievable story. It's, it's such a, it's a special story because number one, it shows you what a real friend is. He was a real friend. This is it's such a beautiful story. Uh, you know, it, it's not the point of it here. But the the previous rabbi once said, he said people in the old country used to say, if only brothers loved each other like the way two Hasidim loved each other. You know, this is a story of love. You know, Rabbi Usher Nikolaiver wouldn't let his friend die alone, and he just. Just, you know, how much, how much determination do you have to have to go there and, and, and scream Tanya to your friend to strengthen him? But this is what the altar wants us to, to have, and it's not easy. I just want to say this again. It is not easy. It is a very difficult attitude to accomplish, and it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work that when you're going through a difficult time to remind yourself, this is God doing this to me, and if God's doing it to me, then it's good, and it's a greater form of good, and I need to accept it, and I can't let it break me. I need to know it's coming from Hashem. And it's real goodness. It can't break me. I need to keep on going with strength and pride and happiness in my life. And I need to be, I need to have an inner joy, even through the suffering. And it's a lifetime of work. But this is this is the attitude that a husband needs to have for life. That even when things are happening, it doesn't break him. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't send him into a downward spiral of pain and suffering. And dear friends, what can I tell you? This is today's Tanya. A very, very emotionally charged Tanya. Very, the author is really, really putting us to work here. Now, this is a kick in the pants, huh? <laughs> the author is saying, I'm not giving you sympathy. I'm going to give you the tools that you need and get to work. And the more that we connect with this and the more that we allow this attitude to, to sink into our hearts and minds, the more we'll be able to face the difficult moments of life with an inner strength, with a, with a real true resilience and with a true anchor of trust in Hashem. So dear friends, I want to wish you all a wonderful evening. May Hashem bless you, that we should never know of all this. We always ask God, please don't make me suffer. Don't test me. We don't bless, we never ask for it. We only want revealed goodness. But when Hashem decides that it's time for deeper goodness, we have to accept it with joy. 
But none of us should ever know of this. We should only have Mashiach coming when even the hidden good will be revealed good. We'll all be able to relate to only goodness then. There'll be no suffering, no pain, no evil, no stress. And dear friends, I want to wish you all a wonderful, a wonderful, stress-free, and only a week of goodness ahead of me. Hashem, take good care of all of us and the Jewish people. And uh, I want to thank you all for joining. And next week, we'll have our next subject, where the author helps us move on to joy. And uh, what can I tell you? Thank you so, so much, dear friends. This is so wonderful. We'll see you all very soon. L'chaim, l'chaim. You know, I think there's an elephant in the room. And, and I don't know how many of the people are thinking this or feeling this now, but all that you say, how do we relate to the hostages? Mm. Mm. There's no answer. There's no answer. The answer is everything we learned. There's nothing more to say. It's from Hashem. And uh, the Medrash tells us that the only way the Jewish people were able to receive the Torah in Mount Sinai was because they went through uh, the smelting pot of Egypt for 210 years. Now, 210 years of Egypt was October 7th for 200 years. All right? Not one day. It was a Holocaust longer than the Holocaust. You know, today we, we, we celebrate Passover. It sounds easy. <laughs> it sounds like a, like a, you know, yeah, we celebrate it. They were using newborn babies as bricks. They would cement living babies into buildings. Every single brick that the Jewish people couldn't produce, any brick that they were behind on the daily quota, they kidnapped babies and crying alive, they, 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 they cemented them into a building. And the Jews had suffered that for 200 years. And then the Medrash tells us, that that's what enabled us to receive the Torah? Well, how do you make sense of that? The Torah, the Torah, the Medrash is telling us this was, somehow this was really good, but it was so good that it was, it, 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 it's a tragedy. You know, how, how could you, you know, are, are we are we rationalizing such such horrible, uh, such horrible suffering? You can't, you can't. That, that, that's the definition, it's, it's a hidden world. If we could understand it, it wouldn't be a hidden world. You know, if it's a hidden world, it's impossible for us to understand it. There's no way, but we have to tell ourselves this. Everything that happens is from Hashem. What more could That's you say? There's nothing to say. There's, 